we made this. Welcome everyone to a podcast devoted to the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. I'm Sean Wilson. And in our latest episode of Between the Notes, we'll be presenting music from and discussing the work of Danny Elfman, Alexandre Desplat, Benjamin Wolfish, and more. Plus, we return to our James Horner top 10. We got down to the uh, number six, I think it was, uh, five or six last time. So we're going to finish off with uh, some lovely James Horner music. We're going to get right into it, I think, and we're going to talk about our first album today that we've been listening to, which is Danny Elfman's Dumbo, set to the film by Tim Burton, the new film, the new adaptation of Disney's classic Dumbo about the the elephant who... Uh, you know what? Because I, I haven't seen, right? Because I haven't seen Dumbo. I haven't seen the new film, Sean, and... It's been so long since I saw Dumbo as a kid. I actually can't remember the story anymore. Like I, I saw it was when I was little, and I know that I know the new film involves a circus, and it's you know you've got various different characters in it. But I don't actually know the story. I, I realise I don't know the story of Dumbo. How have I? How do I not know that? How have I forgotten that over the years? Well, it sounds to me like that you might be in an advantageous position because it sounds like the problem with the new Dumbo is that it, it adds absolutely nothing to the mythology <laughs> of the original Dumbo. So it maybe not being as fresh with the original might make you look at the new one with sort of more sympathetic eyes, maybe. Oh, perhaps. Um, perhaps because I, I just clearly I need to have children because then I'll probably be so sick of Dumbo and all the other <laughs> Disney films that I'll know it line by line. But yeah, obviously, just regardless of the plot, there is a new Dumbo out by Tim Burton and obviously Danny Elfman is scoring it because Danny Elfman scores, I think, all of... Has he ever not scored a Tim Burton film? Can you, can, yeah, can there's, you there's been a couple. He didn't do Edward because they fell out during post-production on oh. uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, although they made up their differences and then he scored Mars Attacks. Uh, he also didn't oh, do... Love that. Uh, yeah, he also didn't do uh, Sweeney Todd because obviously that was a Stephen Sondheim mm. uh, musical. I don't think he did that weird Miss Peregrine movie with Eva Green. So I think there's a few, but oh, other okay. than that, it, it's it's been a really solid partnership. Yeah, it's been and and it's been decades. I think it goes back to the 80s, doesn't it? It goes back to things like Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice, and then obviously Batman, 1989's Batman, which is still probably it could well be Danny Elfman's finest hour. That. In a, in a career that's gl- littered with great scores, as we as you mentioned, Mars Attacks is a particular favourite of mine, and I love that film anyway. But what about Dumbo then? Because obviously, you know, he, he, it almost seems like it's the perfect fit, doesn't it? Really, you've got Tim Burton doing his Tim Burton thing with Dumbo, with a Disney legendary Disney property, and then you've got Danny Elfman coming in and providing the requisite whimsy. Now, from from what you just described, I get the feeling you're not a big fan of the film. Were you a big fan of the music? Uh, I have to confess, I haven't actually seen the movie. I, I, 
I, I haven't got around to it. There have been a lot of other movies out and this kind of tepid response since lukewarm box office have kind of made me even less enthusiastic than I was in the first place because I looked at the trailer and I thought and there's not really an awful lot to entice me there and I, I hold the, the, the original Dumbo in the highest of esteems and bear in mind the original is only an hour long and it's tear-jerking and uh, uh, by all accounts the problem with this one is it bloats the running time to two hours long and it makes the mistake of focusing on the humans while sort of leaving Dumbo stranded in the middle which sounds like a sort of misguided thing um, but yeah to take it back to the start before talking about Dumbo clearly Tim Burton and Danny Elfman are one of the, the all-time great director-composer partnerships and they've carved out a very very unique sound going right the way back to like peewee's big adventure in 1985 and that was you know danny elfman it wasn't a film composer he was an oingo boingo like rock musician and he wasn't classically trained he wasn't trained in film scores and he made the jump to film scores largely because of tim burton and then that led on to things like beetlejuice which is a brilliantly wacky score like you said batman which set the tone for like gothic superhero sounds Edward Scissorhands which I think is Danny Elfman's masterpiece that's one of the truly great scores of the 90s again use the word tear-jerking I mean talk talk about scores that absolutely wrench the emotion out of you that Edward Scissorhands is astonishing and there is a sound there is a a Burton Elfman sound which is that twinkly like uh, celeste choral sort of lively string-led sense of fairy tale whimsy and enchantment that very often gives over to like horror and Menace, if you think of things like Sleepy Hollow, which they also did, there is a very, very distinctive sound, which is by now has been very, very thoroughly worn. You know, we, it, it, it's it's almost become somewhat predictable. And I think that to bring it to Dumbo, the, the problem that I have with the Dumbo score, again, bearing in mind I've not seen the movie, so I don't know how it, how the music works in the movie, I think it's it's all it's perfectly pleasant and I think it's it's musically sophisticated and very accomplished as indeed all of Danny Elfman's music is he is one of the the truly great eccentric distinctive film composers of the modern era but I was listening to it thinking it's it's perfectly tuneful and it, it it's it's well composed but it's not surprising me in any way it it's I think what's happened is that Tim Burton by now is constantly drawing on the same kind of palettes and emotions as, as a director and I think he's kind of fallen into a rut and I think unfortunately it sounds like Danny Elfman is now simply fallen into a rut as well he's rehashing the same kinds of of sounds that he's been doing for about the past 30 odd years which is a bit of a shame because you've got you've got the twinkly like um you, the twinkly chimes you've got the the lively strings you've got the sort of umpar brass band movements for the circus scenes you've got the soaring choir for the scenes where Dumbo takes off and it all sounds perfectly fine there's there are some lovely moments in it there's the soaring suite which is which is a really really beautiful piece of music Uh, it's just that I get the feeling that Danny Elfman's heart now lies in other projects I mean he's just released the violin concerto the 1111 which I was just listening to recently and that there is a sense of him being much more freed in that there's he's much more expressive and it's much sort of more dynamic and the range is interesting and I wonder now if maybe in terms of at least writing for Tim Burton movies Danny Elfman has said pretty much everything that he's got to say I mean certainly one of the criticisms leveled at Dumbo is that Tim Burton doesn't appear to have anything else to say as as a director and I don't say that you know I don't like saying that because I like Tim Burton's films usually but I mean, bearing in mind that you haven't seen the film what did you think of the music? I did I did enjoy it I 
I'm sitting here though. It's been I listened to it I think about a week ago, and I haven't been compelled to go back to it. There is one album that we're going to be talking about today that I've gone back to a lot in the last week, and I am lapping up massively. The other two, I am. I'm in the same position within some respects in that I haven't really found the the desire to keep going back. And when I listen to Dumbo, I think everything you said, I you know, I agree with. I think it it, it has all the kind of Alphaman riffs and refrains and things like that. But I honestly can't really remember much of it. Like a, a week later, I can't really pick much out of it. You know, and and I th- I think that's that's worrying really because there are a lot of scores where. There is a really distinctive, either you know, light motif going through it, or a distinctive re- recurring, you know, sound or particular character theme or whatever it is in a lot of Elfman's music. You know, I talked earlier about Batman. You know, you you, you that that Batman theme is still the best Batman theme I think. You know, of, of any of them that have been done because it is just so powerful and sticks with you. You know, I I can I can through memory I can hum along to most of the Mars Attack score for me because it's just you know again it's just so memorable so sticks in my mind. I don't think that's going to happen with Dumbo. I think I think it's it's maybe the score the film deserves if there's any if the film is anything to go by. Quite workmanlike Alfman in a way, still nice. And I think when you listen to it, you come out the side of it thinking, yeah, that was nice. But I'll I'll be I'll be damned if I can remember much of it. And 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 that is that is odd for an Elfman score. Yeah, I suppose we should stress that a workman like Elfman score is is better than most other composers' yeah. greatest works. And, and yeah. he, he does have a, he he has a very very distinctive voice that he has carved out over forty years. And in you know, for a composer to have a recognisable style is no mean feat. I mean, to be able to recognise. The work of a composer from just a few notes shows what an extraordinary impact they've had on the world of film music. And Danny Elfman is one of those. You only need to listen to a few bars of a Danny Elfman score to know exactly that it's that it's a Danny Elfman score, regardless of whether it's been written for a Tim Burton movie or not. I just think that I kind like you. I kind of wanted the Dumbo score to surprise me a bit more. There are nice things in it. There's the new there's the new version of Baby Mine, which is of course the Dumbo mother like cradle rocking sequence that's that's been redone and there are nice sort of incorporations of, of that you know there are there is a new theme for Dumbo himself I mean interestingly Elfman has been talking about his the work on the movie and he said that Tim Burton sort a simple score that simple really largely based around one theme because Dumbo is a very pure relatively simple character and that's that's interesting it's just that yeah, there there is not there's nothing new in it, and by the sounds of it, that problem afflicts the movie as well. So it might be, it might be a, a case of, you know, this this might be a creative partnership that is temporarily run dry. I mean, it can't you can't really say whether it's permanently run dry, but I think that yeah, like you say, you go back to like how how genre defining Batman was. I mean, Batman along with John Williams Superman is I would say the greatest superhero score ever written. But I yeah, I can't find myself I can't see myself returning to this one to Dumbo repeatedly. No, and and that that is that is a shame, but I'm not in a way I'm well you know what I was hoping I I had a feeling Dumbo wasn't going to be great and yeah okay I'm judging it before I, I we I've got to be careful we don't judge Dumbo before we see it because it, it it's all that's always difficult but when you've got the weight of critical you know I, I'm always one of these people who thinks if you know if one critic says it's it's opinion if about three or four are saying it then they're probably right and with Dumbo 
it seems to be the consensus that it's average, really. It's pretty average. And I was hoping that... I, I did suspect that beforehand, and I was hoping that we might get a score that lifts above that, and we kind of don't, really. So that's a shame. Let's just hope that... I mean, I, I, I hope that Burton gets out of this funk because maybe if he produces a truly great movie again then we might by some sort of joint osmosis get a great Danny Elfman score again out of it maybe yeah and and I think that what Danny Elfman's doing now seemingly again with the violin concerto and I think he's also now started to compose something for a a theatre production I think it popped up on Facebook the other day Danny Elfman is is, you know there's a lot of news about Danny Elfman comes out on Facebook for those who are uh, interested in his work He's clearly spreading his wings beyond the canvas of, of film. I, I I kind of get the impression that he's he's pretty much said a lot of what he has to say through this medium, and maybe it's a case of him no getting being more stimulated by not scoring to picture anymore. And it's kind of I mean I think that's an inevitable thing that pretty much all film composers feel that. And then you know got the, the the great sort of concert works of people like John Williams and and so on. So. Yeah, maybe Elfman's most personal work from now on won't occupy cinema screens, which will be a real shame, but at least he's left a legacy of astonishing works in the past. Yeah, and, and, you know, we'll we'll have to see, won't we, really, in terms of, you know, if if that combination strikes, you know, gold again. But... um... Mm, doesn't seem like Dumbo is it, which is which is a shame. Which is a shame. But I will I will check out. I will go into the movie with as an open mind as I can, given everything. Uh, but mm, I'm not really expecting a great deal. But I mean, uh, what what I will say to you is go and go and check out his violin concerto. It's really it, that's really expressive, and it, it's really it's it's quite beautiful. The piano concerto on the album as well. That that shows how dynamic and lively and interesting Elfman can actually be. That's my that's my that's my homework. So let's move on then to uh, James Horner list. We last week, last time we obviously had a break when we were doing the female composers list but the uh, episode before that we did our first countdown of the uh, our first composer top 10 you know we're going to do more of these we're going to choose some of the greats and we're going to go through a top 10 and compile a top 10 list but this has been our first one so let's have a little we'll have a little quick rundown of, of what we what we went for previously so 10 through to 5 uh, which is what we did before so I started with commando at number 10 my number nine was Bicentennial Man, number eight, Brainstorm, number seven, Deep Impact, number six, Clear and Present Danger, and number five, Titanic. And you, Sean, went for it. Your number 10 was Aliens, your number nine, Brainstorm, eight, The Rocketeer, seven, The Land Before Time, six, Braveheart, five, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. And I think we've, we've, got, a, we've got a mix of things, I think, that we've maybe covered before with some new stuff. So um, why don't you kick us off? Sean this time and um, tell us what your number four we'll do four to three then we'll have a break and we'll come back and do one and two so what is your number four fourth best James Horner score it is Field of Dreams uh, which I think is one of uh, Horner's most beautiful and most understated efforts and I think it's the understated grace of this score that actually draws me to it because Horner drew a lot of criticism for 
you know, being melodramatic and overblown, although, you know, clearly that lent itself to a lot of the films that he wrote music for. And one need only think of things like Titanic and Braveheart for that. Not that I'd necessarily agree with those criticisms, but what I really like about Field of Dreams is just how quietly hypnotic and quietly powerful it is. And I think it's i mean it's clearly you know i imagine most people know the story kevin costner is an iowa farmer who is compelled by a mysterious voice to build a baseball um uh pitch in in his cornfield and then this has like sort of sweeping personal ramifications so it's 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 an americana story it's also a kind of strange ghostly fairy tale there are elements of comedy in it there are elements of real poignancy linked to costner's character and this gives horner a really rich canvas to work off and what I like is the way the the score builds from this generally like sort of pensive, like moody sort of lots of the, the, there's the use of the, um, the 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 instrument that Horner loved to use, which is the shakuhachi wood flute, which gives that kind of like abrasive, like eerie sound, and then a lot of oddly for Horner, a lot of synthetics and like quiet piano, and then it builds and builds and builds, and you get this steadily sort of sense of awakening through the score, really, which culminates in what I think is my favourite Horner cue of all time, which is the place where dreams come true, which you get the reveal at the end that reduces all men and, and women to tears at the end of the uh, film. It, it's heartbreaking. That's 10 minutes of pure, undiluted Horner magic that feels earned. I mean, it, the music is sentimental and it is warm, but there's an honesty to it. There's a sincerity to it because of how well the atmosphere has been built up throughout the preceding score. I like scores that do that, that sort of hold the sort of big emotional moments back until the end and make that emotion feel earned. And I think the score is a masterpiece. I think it, it works magnificently well in the film. It's so captivating on album. Yeah, but love it, love it. But it's one of two Oscar-nominated scores for um, Horner. In Oh, no, actually, hang on. No, he was Oscar-nominated for this he wasn't oscar nominated for glory big pardon uh yeah and unfortunately i haven't listened to it because i've never seen the film i've never seen haven't, field of dreams haven't you no oh no, wow. no. I, I i've got so, there's so many films that i should have seen that i haven't seen like i've i've got for um oh, what was it for it, it might have been for christmas i think it was for christmas my wife bought me a, one of those wall chart things with hundred like bucket list movies you need to watch. And you you scratch them off and it reveals like a fun sort of iconoclastic you know artwork poster for yeah. it. And it's it, they're, they're great fun. And I've got, we've got it pinned on our, on my fridge and on our fridge and, and I've I've scratched off quite a few, but I've still got about twenty five on there. Things I should have seen, you know, re- things I really should have seen. I and mean, I was I was off work. I was poorly a few a couple of months ago, and I was like, sod it, I'm watching Casablanca. I've never <laughs> seen it. I'm yeah. watching it. Now, Field of Dreams, I don't think is on that 100 list. But, you know, it's one of many that I should have seen. And if I had seen it, I would have obviously picked up Horner scores. Every chance I might have heard some of this music elsewhere. But um, but no, I um, they built it. I need to come, really. Yeah, yeah you do. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. I mean, it's, it's his first collaboration with Phil Alden Robinson, with whom he would later work on Sneakers, which is another great um, Horner score. Like, lovely use of like saxophone mixed with this piping, like vocal choir arrangement. That they were clearly great collaborators. But I, I cannot stress how beautiful the Field of Dreams score is. That's why it's my number four. Right, I'm I'm on it. It's I'm on it. Film and score. All right, it's going on. The, it's going on the list. My number four is a film. Thankfully, I have seen. Uh, which, which is always good when you put in a list together. I'm going back into the world of Jack Ryan for Patriot Games. Now, this one, I I, I really like this film. This is obviously we, I covered, we covered uh, Clear and Present Danger 
um, which was the second film in the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan films. This this was the first one, Patriot Games, and it's the Tom Clancy novel, basically Jack Ryan CIA versus the IRA, and this was 1992, <laughs> basically. That's a brilliant this, way of putting it. <laughs> CIA versus the IRA. That's yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> it's set in 1992 when you know the troubles were were still you know rife really long before the good friday agreement when it all started to calm down a little bit and then you know it's it's it, it's one of those films you know jack ryan has to come to england to protect a, a royal you know lord from ira terrorists and it's all it's all a bit the film i i really like the film but it's very it's hokey and my god it doesn't it is very very sort of stereotypical in how the the irish terrorists are portrayed <laughs> you killed you know. my kid brother you killed me, kid brother. Yeah, psychotic, psychotic Irish Sean Bean. Yeah, you killed me, kid brother. So in that, in those terms, it is it is it is dated quite a bit that film. But I really like what Horner does, and I mean, I the the clear and present danger score carries through certain of the the, uh, the Jack Ryan ideas, but that it. It almost feels, in a way, like a bit like a forerunner to what kind of some of the stuff he does in Titanic. Actually, a lot of the you know the woodwind and the pipes and things like that to create a very sort of Irish, well, very Irish, Irish, <laughs> Irish. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not subtle, but it's but it works. It actually works, and and I think what really sells it for me this score is the the, the final main cue, which is a significant cue, which is the boat chase, which is this fantastic like five minutes set to actually a, a brilliantly put together boat fight sequence um in the middle of this storm off like the coast of cornwall or wherever it is or devon <laughs> i can't even remember where it is kent somewhere somewhere on the coast which i think is a fantastically put together action sequence actually probably one of the best things in the whole film and the, the score for that is horner at his most pulse pounding intensive you know, you just, I was just heart in mouth listening to that, especially set to the film. So, yeah, I've got a lot of fondness for the film and, and the score for this one. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it, it's an influential score and people don't think of it like that. And in terms of like the Enya, like you say, New Age, yeah, you're absolutely right. It did have a massive influence on later scores. I can't say it's a Horner score that I have returned to regularly. Um, but there's no denying its its atmospheric qualities. I think I need to listen to it again, actually, and and take a closer listen to it. Yeah, and, and the, well, yeah, it's worth it. Like I say, it's worth it for that boat chase cue. I mean, that's just cracking action music, really, really is. And you know, when he's not always necessarily associated with action music in some way, certainly towards the later part of his career. Um, you know, a lot of the scores we've covered are far more melodious and things like that. But when he can, he can do an action cue as good as anyone, Horner. So there, oh, that's... oh yeah, yeah. When he breaks out the percussion and the oh, anvil and the snare yeah. drums, it's 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 brilliant. He had a fantastic rhythmic sensibility. Yeah, he really did. Yeah, and uh, that's definitely true of some of the Patriot games. So yeah, that's my number four. What, what's your what's your three then, Sean? It is Apollo thirteen, uh, which ah. I watched again over because yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 I need to say Apollo thirteen. No, no, I, um, <laughs> one of the, the easily one of the best films that Horner ever scored, and of course, yeah. when a great composer gets great material to work with, invariably the results in terms of the music will be absolutely spectacular. And you know, there's certainly nothing to go against that here. I mean, it's, it's probably Ron Howard's greatest film. I would say, uh, the, obviously, the recounting the Apollo 13 space disaster in which three astronauts were denied their chance to go to the moon. And then it's the case of how do we get them back to Earth? So it's a score that, that it, by turns, it is about the, the majesty of the space race. 
uh, with the, the the beautiful um trumpet solos which I, I, can't, I can't remember if it's um it might be malcolm mcnab that might have done the, the trumpet solos, but i might be wrong about that but you've got that lovely expressive lyricism of uh, americana but not not annoying patriotic americana but again that sincerity that i mentioned in field of dreams it's got a lovely yearning almost kind of melancholy quality to it that 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 flourishes during the the, the launch sequence and during the the absolutely magnificent uh, splashdown sequences at the end where spoiler alert the three men get back to earth <laughs> this is based on reality <laughs> so, <laughs> i don't think i'm really spoiling anything there but those the final 10 minutes of this film it it it's astonishingly well scored there's this, there's the the moment where you've got the choral build up as tom hanks gets out of the the lunar module at the end and then you get this sort of choral um and symbol and string crescendo and it, it literally ascends my spirit soaring every single time so you've got that magnificent horner expressiveness that is in it, it's not sappy or schmaltzy it is it's absolutely sort of tailored to the objective uh of uh, it's it's got an objective quality to it it's very disciplined music and i mean in between you've got a lot of very very interesting textures there's the use of annie lennox's um vocals during you know which act as a lament for the fact that the, the men don't actually get to the moon they circle around the moon and then they're forced to, to turn back away from it back to earth and her voice is used very very well as it was indeed in several other film scores so i think it's 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 a tremendous score from a tremendous year for horner it was it was oscar nominated in 1995 alongside braveheart but then you consider that year he also did jumanji casper and bolto as well i mean what what a phenomenal year for <laughs> any film composer that was that 90 95 an amazing year for horner and yeah apollo 13 i mean it's beautiful it's a beautiful score we're gonna we're gonna play we're gonna play a little bit of that i think at the end to, to see us off this podcast um because it's it's beautiful stuff so it's a great choice great great choice my number three before we move on is uh, one of two Star Trek themes um, scores that I've put into my top ten. I'm going for The Search for Spock, uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which was the second and final James Horner score for the Star Trek franchise, um, following up from The Wrath of Khan, which I'm going to mention a bit later. Two different scores, really, to two fairly different films. This This obviously was... A film all about it was whereas the wrath of khan was a bit more of a sort of naval sort of uh, adventure in space the search for spock is more of an action adventure kind of in its own way sort of romantic sci-fi sort of romp in in a way which which is all about trying to bring you know, the legendary character of spock who died in the last film back and it's just got so i mean horner did as i think this is a really unheralded horner score an unheralded Star Trek score actually in many ways because people don't always talk about this this one maybe because the film is hit and miss I really like the film to be fair but the the film is hit and miss but there's some brilliant pieces on this I mean the the, the two that really stick in my mind is stealing the Enterprise which is this ten minute sequence where Captain Kirk and his crew steal the Enterprise basically and it's so good it's so tense it sort of ratchets up this you know feeling of something. Of 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 a situation that these characters may not get out of, and it brings it re- right to the brink. And it's got it's got some great electronic bits in it as well. And then the other piece that I love from this score is towards the end. It's called the Catra Ritual, and it's set on the planet Vulcan, where spoilers, 
Spock's, they get Spock, they take him to Vulcan and they give him some heebie-jeebie psychic stuff and he's back to normal. But the, it's these beautiful, beautiful building sort of, very alien sort of piece which which is so epic in how it, it portrays this, as I say, the capture ritual that it, it gives me goosebumps. Even thinking about it, it gives me goosebumps. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever heard in a, in a, in a, in a Star Trek movie, in a science fiction movie. So yeah, it's it's just got it's just got some beautiful pieces. I've I've always loved it, and I think I think it's a great great piece of Horner work. Yeah, w- would it be remiss of me to say that I'm really not familiar with the film or the score at all? I can't even recall having seen the movie. I'm, I must have done at some point. I I I really, it's not a Horner score that I'm familiar with. In, com- in comparison to Wrath of Khan, which you're right, gets gets all the glory. I I don't really know this one at all. I'm, I'm again one of the great things about doing these lists is that you hear different choices from different people and it compels you to go back and listen to old classics again um and i think i'm gonna have to do that again bearing in mind i haven't seen the movie either i think i'm gonna have to catch up on my track a little bit <laughs> oh man I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna say i am right now i am i am in the process of finding the capture ritual on youtube and i'm gonna message you that that like track because it is just beautiful beautiful stuff yeah um but you know, I mean, fair enough. I mean, it's one of those things. You know, I'm 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 a big Trekkie, so I, I know I know the franchise inside out. If you're not that kind of you know that kind of fan of that, you, it might be one you've missed. You know, it might be a film. You know, it is very sort of uh, yeah, okay. It's one of the '80s movies and stuff, but it is it is more for I would say your 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 more hardcore Trek fans in a way. It's not it's not the one I'd recommend to people and go, oh, that's that's your entry point into Star Trek. It's the mid part of a three part story, basically. But it's, the, the film's good. The film's a good fun. It's it's, it's a, I, I like the film. It's it's a bit silly, but it's good. But the score, it's well worth it. So yeah, look it up, short. I'm going to send you the capture ritual. I'm doing it right now. Uh, I'll tell we- you what. If you, if you do that, I'll send you uh, the place where dreams come true, and we'll do like yeah. a cultural exchange. We'll, we'll yes, do- <laughs> yes, yeah. Swapsies, swapsies. I love cool. it.
Okay, that was to San Francisco uh, from The Sisters Brothers, uh, a film by Jacques Audiard. Probably said that wrong because I always get these names wrong. Uh, although I got <laughs> Desplat right, didn't I? I got Desplat right earlier. You, you did, so, like, you did. Yeah, I, I think you got Audiard right as well. Have I? Yeah, I'm right. pretty sure that's how you say it. Jacques Audiard, yeah. Jacques Audiard, yeah. I didn't yeah. quite, quite get the Jacques. You've got the Jacques. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. But yeah, uh, film uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and John C. Riley. It's set in 1850s Oregon about the uh, the Eli and Charlie sisters, the brothers, chasing a gold prospector, uh, uh, both a pair of assassins, based on the novel by Patrick DeWitt and scored by Alexandre Desplat. And th- this is a film that came out quite a while ago, I think, in the US. I think it came out at sort of autumn time last year. And I was sent the album then, actually. And it, it kind of didn't really register with me because... I'd not really been familiar with the film. I was like, oh, we're not getting that for ages. It's only just coming out in in the UK. And I haven't seen the movie. And I think the movie has been liked a fair bit by people. It's sort of been lukewarmish reception. Some people liked it, some people didn't. But I love this. I've I've been listening to this on rotation for like a week or two now. I think it's, I think it's great. It's, it's, it's got mixes, I think, of, of what you expect from Desperate. And at the same time, it feels like it's him trying some new things. Did you like this one, Sean? Yeah, I, I, re- I really did, actually. And I, I saw the film a couple of weeks ago. You're right, it took a long time to come out over here. It, it played at the Venice Film Festival. And it's not a surprise that it's taken a long time to come out of it, over here because it didn't do well in America. And upon seeing the movie, it's very easy to understand why it hasn't played with a mainstream audience it's a very strange movie i liked it actually i read the book so i kind of knew what to expect from the tone but it's very uh-huh. unpredictable it, it kind of ambles along and it's almost like a rubik's cube of a movie you can't quite get a handle on what kind of tone it's going to strike next it moves from like whimsy to all of us like massive gun blasting violence and the sounds of the guns are like really quite colossal and well done like spark smokes coming off smoke coming off them and then it and then it sort of morphs into a kind of poignant story of like brotherly rivalry and brotherly love and then it comes full circle back to being quite violent again it's a very odd little movie with two great central performances and of course what that allows Desplat to do is to dip into his really creative bag of musical tricks and it, we should point out that his previous scores for ADR do not fall into the sort of melodic accessible Desplat that is mainly maybe popular with mainstream audiences you think of the stuff like the Harry Potter scores or, or the Golden Compass or the King's Speech his scores for ADR do not strike that note they are often quite alienating and strange and they deal with texture and sound rather than melody and harmony and I think the, the, the interesting thing with the Sisters Brothers score I was, I was reading about this uh, the other night about his approach to this how, how he wanted to, to do a western score that didn't sound like Ennio Morricone or Elmer Bernstein because obviously that's a very very well trodden avenue into writing music for westerns what he did what Desplat has done is he sought to write a, a score in the idiom of that most American of genres which was jazz so it's almost kind of like an inverted jazz western score there are there music there are I, I stayed through the end credits to sort of see what the instruments were in it and there's a saxophone credited in it I was like oh I don't remember there being a saxophone in it and then I, I listened to the score in its own I was like oh there it is in what might be termed the main themes there are like jazzy overtones to it there's that kind of almost um there's that kind of strange sort of rumbling like piano or honky-tonk piano going through it which again it sounds it sounds like it it adheres to the stylistics of many a western score but Desplar is able to turn it inside out through his usual 
musical voice. So it's both inside the genre and outside of the genre as well. The music has got a kind of sweep to it, but it's kind of a strange off-kilter sweep. And in that sense, it's perfect for the movie. I mean, all the, I, I couldn't even begin to list all the number of instrumental choices that are used in this and the ways in which they use it's a very odd sounding score it's not again it's not one that's easy to listen to but it works like gangbusters in in the movie and i have to say i found it very compelling on it on its own terms i I think desplar has got such a singular musical voice that even when he's writing something quite baffling like this it becomes inherently compelling yeah yeah it's it's it is odd, isn't it? I mean, I, I was surprised actually at how how much I enjoyed it, even though it is in its own way. It's, at times, it's quite lyrical. At times, it's quite discordant. At times, it's quite mystical. At times, it's you know. I mean, we. It's funny. We've been um, over the last few months. Um, we've been playing the video game Red Dead Redemption Two, which is just an amazing western. You know, set in like the eighteen ninety nine in america and it's it's what it's it's got a lot of obviously music in that which is really good and it fits and as as i was listening we were listening to the sisters brothers my wife said this this would fit some of this would fit perfectly on red dead redemption 2 you know it has that it had a lot of it you know the, the track we played to san francisco there's another one called to jacksonville they have they really have a great sense of movement you know that kind of western movement that, ca- that characters would take you really feel that with, with some of these pieces and then you get something like gold which is this really beautifully strange piece that feels like you're in the middle of a fairy tale so it's it is it is unusual but i really i really connected with it and there are certain tracks that i think i enjoy more than others it doesn't have the flow of something for me like say isle of dogs did last year which i loved and a, and a sort of consistency in terms of recurring themes and motifs and things like that. But when this works, I think it works beautifully well for me. And it's it's rare that I don't like a Desplat score, really. But this, yeah, just just clicks with me. I think I think it's great. I think it's really good. I hope I enjoy the the, the film when I see the film. I will watch the film eventually. I hope I enjoy the music as much to the film as I have independently. Actually, I, I mean, when, when if and when you see the film, you'll you'll immediately realise how well tailored the tone of the music is to the movie because because it's quite a dark score isn't it and and the underlying th- themes of, of the of the movie and indeed the book on which it's based are very dark it's it's a movie about male isolation and male identity and about how john c Riley's character eli has spent a lifetime killing people with his brother and maybe wants to give it up and then charlie the whacking phoenix character is the more sort of loose cannon one thinks nothing of like firing his six shooter in a crowd of people says to eli no, we're the sisters brothers you know through violence comes through unity we're together and there are a lot of these kind of complicated contradictory themes which play directly into the contradictory nature of, of the score it's a very difficult score to get a handle on I mean interestingly you pick the two San Francisco piece which is one of the very few scenes in the movie that I actually remember the music opening up it actually accompanies with it without wishing to give too much away it's the scene where Eli and Charlie see the sea for the first time they see the ocean but they are they are not they are not neither of them are quite sophisticated enough to reach to, to appreciate the gravity of that situation there is a dialogue exchange between them which is quite rhetorical and quite banal yet also darkly funny and it's it's one of the few moments in in the movie where the score lifts up but it still sounds very strange it doesn't it doesn't stoop to sort of like hollywood's 
musical conventions. And I think that's entirely to Desplat's credit. He's a very intelligent composer, very clever. Uh, and I think it's a credit to Jacques Odiar for drawing this kind of music out of him. For sure, for sure. I, I, I really like it. Um, in fact, it's made me want to see the movie even more now, which is, you know, a credit a credit to the music, really. So we're going to play you a little bit more of The Sisters Brothers um, by Alexandre Desplat. Um, that's out now from Lakeshore Records, and I'd say it's well worth checking out. So here we go. Alright then, back to our final James Horner wrap-up. This is the uh, number one, number two for each of us. Um, This is what we think is the creme de la creme of Horner. And that's saying something, because we've been through some amazing scores already. So um, one or two of these we may have covered last time, but we'll see where we go. Sean, what's your number two? Second best James Horner score of all time. Uh, Mine is Glory, which is quite simply one of the greatest war scores of all time. Actually, one of the greatest war films of all time. It's about the um, first ever African-American regiment serving the American Civil War, if memory serves me, uh, directed by Ed Zwick, uh, James Horner's first collaboration with Ed Zwick, with uh, whom he would work um, three times in total. Uh, it's it's an astonishingly powerful score. It largely takes the form of... there. There's, there's, there's very strong sense of a choral requiem like the, the score is a requiem for all of those that died in this tragic um conflict but primarily this this regiment it builds to the climactic battle of fort wagner which is a very very pivotal moment in the american civil war so you've got these extraordinary chanting like choral forces that are unleashed towards the end of the movie and, and actually it, it's a score that uses the, the human voice as an instrument if you want to know how effectively the human voice can be used in a film score. Go and listen to Glory by James Horner because it's brilliant. It's the, I believe, the Harlem Boys Choir that are used and it gives a kind of innocence and yet also a very, very piercing sense of urgency when needed. And you've got all the, the usual um, Hornerisms are in there. Again, as I said with Danny Elfman earlier, you can recognise a James Horner score pretty much as soon as it starts. There's something about the way 
He writes for strings and brass and percussion, particularly in you know the context of a militaristic movie like this. It, it's it's a really really incredibly well done score it wasn't oscar nominated in 1989 as i said earlier that went to field of dreams this got a golden globe nomination and neither score won in their respective categories but i mean again talk about a, a double whammy in 1989 i mean blimey <laughs> it's just, yeah horner had a phenomenal year that year yeah what an amazing year really yeah i've done it again though i haven't watched glory and I haven't listened to the score. I mean, make, make it a, honestly, make it a priority for both because they are such oh my powerful God. experiences. I know. Both of them. I know. I need, I need to do it. I need to do it. I'm really letting the side down here, really, with this. So I'm glad, I'm glad though, that, that your number one, which you're going to talk about in a minute, I have seen the film. I have <laughs> definitely listened to the music. So, yeah, I will. Glory's definitely on my list to do. I'm going to cheat a little bit with mine and I'm going to sort of do two in one here because both of the ones that I've got at my top we talked about last week um, or the, 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 the last episode we took, we covered the James Horner score. So my number two is Aliens, which was your number 10 and obviously James Cameron's like legendary 1986 science fiction movie. I think I'm I think I'm slightly biased in a way because of of the fil- of the one that isn't in the film, the combat drop thing. We talked about this before, and I think that's the one that always leaps out in my head all the time, even though it wasn't actually in the film. But it's, I still think it's really good. I still think it's got some great great pieces in it. So I I I, I couldn't help but put that towards the top. And my number one is the Wrath of Khan, which was your number five. And we, as I say, we talked about that last time as well. But I, I just, I just think that's just unbeatable. It was interesting actually on on Facebook in some of the uh, the Facebook groups, um, which I think we're both in. Things like I think it was Film Track Scoreboard, possibly. There've been there've been a lot of James Horner polls lately. I don't know if you've been getting involved yeah, with these. I've Sean. been seeing those. Yeah, I think it was Go Soundtracks uh, who's been putting them on, and they've been really good polls. And I th- and uh, Wrath of Khan beat. I think I think it, what was it now? It beat. I think it beat something quite significant recently. It might be Braveheart actually, but it seems to be doing really well in these polls in terms of in terms of winning. It's these they're always fairly close because you know it's hard to really pick between most of these scores. But I think I think Wrath of Khan just has some. I mean, I'm, I'm biased anyway because it's it's probably my favourite science fiction movie. It's one of it was in my top five favourite films of all time. So I am biased in that I know that film ridiculously well. I've watched it a million times. But I I that music is amazing it's amazing in so many ways it's moving it's 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 thrilling it's it's just got everything it's it's just got everything there's certain tracks in it like you know like the battle in the matara nebula just well the, the even in the opening the opening and the end credits which just do these beautiful new things from the um uh with the star trek theme you know different from jerry goldsmith's the motion picture which is my favorite score in fairness of all time and that's for, for very different reasons but you know it's yeah, I'm like I'm just I'm super biased, but that it it, it it wouldn't be everyone's number one, which it wasn't yours. But um, I just I just love it. I love it to bits, and I've listened to it so many times, so I can't see past that really. Well, I suppose um, you, you, when you could also say that I mean, Wrath of Khan was so much more commercially successful than the motion picture. It was so much more of an accessible, enjoyable mm. movie, and I suppose a lot of that could probably be credited to Horner's score because Horner's yeah, it's, it's a really good number one choice. Horner's score is so spectacular, and it's got that lovely 
swashbuckling sense of like daring do it's like you're watching a movie set in outer space but it could easily be set on the high seas which mm. I, I believe is that was that was jerry goldsmith's original intent with the theme for star trek the motion picture but then robert wise said to him oh it complained oh it sounds like sailing ships and then a rather miffed goldsmith then had to rework <laughs> the theme which then became obviously the, the main star trek theme that was used in uh, next generation which was interesting yeah i, I can't fault you in terms of your number one choice i mean this was this was arguably the score that put horner on the map i mean maybe you could also argue battle beyond the stars but this was the first big hollywood score that put him on the map yeah great choice yeah and and, and like i say i know you haven't listened to search for spark but it, it's not quite as good as this but it does and it's different he tries different things with the search for spark but it, it does have some great pieces in it so yeah, uh, he did some cracking stuff. It's a shame he didn't do more, really. Much as I, you know, I can't begrudge the fact that we got a few Jerry Goldsmith scores again for Star Trek franchise. It's a shame he didn't do any more Horner. But um, all right, let's finish this up then. What is your favourite James Horner score of all time? My favourite is Legends of the Fall from 1994, which oh. you said is a movie that you have seen. I have seen it many years ago, but I have seen it, and yeah. I, I've listened. I've got the score on CD, and it's just sumptuous isn't it absolutely, absolutely magnificent oh, it's be- beautiful uh, i mean if, if you want what is what is essentially a, a summation of everything that made horner's music so great go and listen to this score and i will say outright the movie i think is risible and overblown and very <laughs> silly um it's, it's, it's not a movie that's got i mean you'll know this it's not a movie that's got subtlety in its arsenal no. has it not at all but then it, it, it's not meant to it's it's a turn of the century american family yeah. melodrama about the fall from innocence three brothers all very different one of whom dies in world war Two. the other one played by brad pitt who kind of walks around like he's in a hair commercial like swish, <laughs> swishing his hair around all over the place goes goes feral you know and sort of adapts to like native american ways anthony hopkins is the <laughs> he's like the grizzled patriarch who <laughs> su- suffers a stroke midway through and then walks through the remainder of the movie with his half his face sort of contorted and it's kind of like mm. right okay um it's not yeah it's not an understated movie it's a rather daft one but i mean talk about offering the kind of canvas upon which horner loved to paint horner loved music that was Horner liked to write music that was emotional. He's done. He did several interviews about this. There's even a TED talk with him online about this. He liked music that played into emotion. He said he liked to make write music that would make himself cry, and this is clearly the kind of story that would allow for that. It's 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 Americana. There is a sweep to it. It's 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 about the his, it's about history. Um, it's about the passing of time and the passing of an era. Yeah, it's also a, a character-driven movie. Although I'd argue that none of those characters are, are written particularly well. But it's it's Horner's score that pulls you into the movie. I remember watching this movie for the first time and hearing Horner's score in context, thinking, "Blimey, the the, the movie is forgettable. The score is utterly spectacular, and it it, it shows his." extraordinary capacity for melody i mean the main theme for the ludlows that the piano it's the piano theme that then develops into this folksy montana style melody for a solo violin just speaks of the landscape so brilliantly but that's just one part of the score i mean it's it's an enormously rich score there are so many themes in it there are themes for individual characters there are some very brutal like shakuhachi-esque like violent tempestuous sequences for the more troubling scenes later on you've also got the extraordinary like galloping brass for like the world war one battlefield sequences and yeah, you've just got these extraordinary like euphoric moments of beauty I mean, horner could write in that manner like few others 
could. And clearly this is like an unashamedly melodramatic and emotional score. And I think that's the kind of stuff that Horner did so brilliantly. It's it's the sort of music that he, that his detractors would sort of jump on and go, well, it's it's overblown. It's it it's sort of lacrimose and I, I don't agree with that in the context of this score. I think this score is is a masterpiece. It wasn't Oscar nominated. I, I believe it was Golden Globe nominated. It, it wasn't Oscar nominated, which is it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? That <laughs> my number one choice didn't get that kind of recognition, maybe because the film wasn't all that well regarded. But anyone who is remotely curious to hear all of Horner's stylistics and characteristics quirks wrapped up in one school go and listen to this because it, it's it's tremendous it's really powerful absolutely it's beautiful it's a beautiful score it's it's been the film is ha- a bit hazy for me i have seen it years ago but the film's a bit hazy for me now but there's no getting away from the fact there's that there's just some amazing that 14 minute i think it is piece yeah um, um alfred tristan the colonel alfred, legend yeah that's it yeah it's i mean it's, oh it's amazing stuff so yeah, and it's really cheap to get now. It's really cheap to get. If you get, especially secondhand, if you can get that on Amazon, like for one, something like stupid, like two pound for on, on CD, it's absolute bargain. So you know, pick it up, pick it up. It's it's great. So yeah, that's our um, top ten James Horner scores. There's some stuff here that you will have heard. Uh, there's some stuff that is hopefully going to be new to you, but hopefully. There are quite a few takeaways here to go away and listen to. So let's run down them finally to uh, get the full top 10 um, for each of us um, for what we thought. So uh, we'll start with you, Sean, this time. So your number 10 was Aliens. Number 9, Brainstorm. Your number 8, The Rocketeer. Number 7, The Land Before Time. Number 6, Braveheart. Number 5, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Number 4, Field of Dreams. Number 3, Apollo 13. Number 2, Glory. And number 1, Legends of the Fall. And my top ten, um, just to go alongside that, was Commando. And this is good. This the, my 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 whole list is not nearly as like classic. As yours. <laughs> no, it but is but in, in its own way. You know, this, in this, its is own what an, way. this is what an astonishing career James Horner had. It's, yeah, it's so great. Mine is like so much more like straightforward. Uh, so number ten, Commando. Number nine, Bicentennial Man. Number eight, Brainstorm. Number seven, Deep Impact. Number six, Clear and, Pl- and Present Danger. Uh, number five, Titanic. Number four, Patriot Games. Number three, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Number two, Aliens. And number one, The Wrath of Khan. So just go away and listen to all those if you haven't, because there is just absolute gold there. What, I mean, um, what, what, an, what an assortment of scores that is. I mean, my my heart was ripped out when I heard that James Horner had died in that plane crash in, in 2015. Mm. And it was like I'd never met him. I'd never interviewed him. But it was like I'd lost somebody that I knew well through their work and it was two and a half years later when there was the memorial concert at the Royal Albert Hall um October 2017 Mm. I think it was and that was the moment where I finally thought I've heard his music played live and that was kind of the moment where I felt like I could say goodbye to him finally and that that was that was a very powerful and sobering experience for me as indeed has has been compiling and talking about this list actually very 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 sobering yeah and difficult absolutely <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna rise to the challenge again and uh we're gonna do another two composers uh, uh another top 10 uh, probably over two episodes again of another composer but we haven't decided who that is yet so we'll, we'll put our heads together and uh, figure that out I, I i'm pretty sure that big big jerry is is, is <laughs> incoming i will this. insist on it <laughs> uh, i think goldsmith. it might have to be i think it might have to be jerry goldsmith next but we'll see we'll talk about it <laughs> 
so we've got one final new score to talk about today uh, that is uh, a brand new movie. We are talking about Shazam, the uh, the brand new superhero movie um, directed by David F. Sandberg, starring Zachary Levi, uh, which is the uh, the latest in the DCEU, um, DC Extended Universe, all about streetwise foster kids, 14-year-old foster kid called Billy Batson, who shouts out one word, Shazam! And then he becomes the grown-up superhero Shazam. And uh, this obviously is a superhero movie played for laughs with a score um, by Benjamin Warfish, who uh, appeared not so long back, um, scoring Serenity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, thankfully, I don't know about you, Sean, I I haven't seen Shazam yet. It looks a lot of fun. The trailer made me laugh several times, and not many trailers actually do that anymore. Because I hate hate most trailers, because they seem to cut the film in terrible ways. But this actually did make me chuckle. So I'm quite looking forward to the film. But thankfully, Warfish has done a much better job (laughs) with this one than he did with Serenity, I think. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot more going on in in this school well, clearly it's the kind of movie that that allows for a much more rambunctious uh, boisterous in your face score than something like serenity does I, I have to say i like the film i'm kind of bemused by the ecstatic responses that it's getting i i thought it, it is funny and by a long way it's it's the best dc extended universe m- movie i mean that's not saying very much although i i i still really like i really like wonder woman i thought wonder woman was was really great I mean, it, it's not far behind that i i do think that there is a tension in the movie between the central conceit which it wants to be like big meets superman that's how pretty much every journalist has described it and it's not that far off but there is there's a lot of baggage in the movie there's a lot of stuff that you have to stodge through like storytelling stuff. I mean, there is, even though people have kind of downplayed the fact that this is part of the, you know, people have said this isn't, it's not immediately apparent that it's part of a wider universe. It is there. There's a lot of like mechanics and like things have to be like maneuvered into place and kind of things. So it, it is, I think it is a bit of a stodgier experience than maybe some reviews have made it out to be. It's also a darker movie than the trailers make it out to be. I mean, the villain played by Mark Strong, Dr. Zivana, is you know, he he harnesses the seven deadly sins and he unleashes them at several points. He is actually quite. I mean, it's a twelve A rate movie. Like, it's quite menacing at times. And Mark Strong is such a terrific actor. He's got a really commanding presence. But and that that my description there kind of in, well for me anyway. I mean, obviously different people interpret this differently. That informs the tone of the score, which narr- the way narratively the way the movie develops is that you get the the emergence of the Shazam superhero, but he doesn't really realise his full potential or what it is that he's meant to do. He doesn't realise his responsibility as a superhero until the final sort of twenty five minutes, half hours, classic superhero story arc. And what that means is that the the Shazam theme by Ben Wolfish, which is terrific. I mean, it, it's it, it actually reminds me a lot of David Arnold's theme from Independence Day, actually, which is not a bad thing. I think that's it's great, but that theme doesn't actually feature in the score in its entirety very much at all until you get to like the last maybe 20 minutes which is narratively it makes sense but I think what if a score is going to do that if a score is kind of beholden to its movie in that sense then I think what really needs to happen is that the secondary material needs to sort of step up and I think for me it does in fits and starts I like the theme for Dr. Zivine you've got this swirling sort of woodwind choral theme which connects to the the, the layer of the original Shazam wizard who ends up giving Billy his 
power. So you've got this lovely kind of swirling portentous material, which reminded me a lot of Wolfish's previous work for um, Sandberg. I mean, think of like Lights Out. I mean, um, Wolfish is a terrific horror composer. I loved his work on It and The Cure for Wellness. There's a lot of menacing material in the score, more so than you might expect, given that the the, the, the artwork is Zachary Levy sort of chewing, blowing bubblegum in a cape, you know, holding mm. a phone. Yeah, uh, I think I think there's a lot more of that in the score than one might imagine. You you kind of have to get through that to get to the heroic moments, and when you get to like the last twenty minutes, it it finally picks up. I'm, I mean, and it's a long album; it's like seventy minutes long. So I, yeah, I, I kind of think you know there are it, it, it's it's a really enjoyable score. I think maybe for me, it may it maybe require repeat listenings to kind of draw out its nuances because certainly. When you hear the Shazam concert arrangement at the beginning, you think, blimey, this is going to be like best score of the year material. You think you don't get superhero themes sounding like this anymore. Um, really like full throttled, full throttle like Brassy, you know, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, James Horner-esque appropriately enough. But then that theme is kind of deliberately rendered piecemeal throughout much of the score. And it's only towards the end that you actually get the full symphonic range but again i understand why that's happened but maybe maybe it's maybe the score didn't grab me quite as much as i expected it to based on that opening track but i mean did you did you feel that way as well i feel exactly the same way funnily enough yeah and that that's why i uh, earlier was talking about how two of the scores didn't quite do it for me i i remember tweeting about the Shazam score when I was first listening to the first few tracks and I was like oh this is great this is really good this is really good and then as further I got into it and like you say it took a lot of listening because it's a long score I found I was switching off towards mm. the middle you know and I was a little bit like mm, this this feels like it probably works better with the movie um, at this point in terms of actual listening experience independently I just found myself a little bit bored but then, when, like you say, when it, when it, there were the particular Shazam theme, the first couple of themes, I, I was it, for me there was a point where I was like, "Oh, that's a bit John Williams," and I was like, "That's good." And I was like, okay, good. Um, and you know, it's not something you necessarily expect from Wolfish either, because he's you know he's done a lot of collaborations with people like Hans Zimmer, and you know he does he's done a lot of more ambient kind of stuff in the past. And you think, well, actually, this is really different. And so, uh, yeah, I, I feel like if it had managed to, ma- and maybe it wouldn't fit the movie in 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 a, in a sense, but if it had managed to maintain a little bit more of that consistent, you know, um, brio to it that the, the beginning and the end has, I think it would have been a great score. And I think it's one of those that sort of, yeah, it sort of peaks at the beginning, dips a bit, and then recovers a bit towards the end. It's a funny one. So I mean, and some people have been going nuts for this score, and I'm like, well, go nuts for the tr- for the theme, yes. But I don't know if the score itself deserves quite that much applause, really. So yeah, I think we're completely on the same page with this one. Definitely. I mean, it, it's interesting when you raise the the the, the notion of, of the music within the film itself because I I actually thought when I was watching the film that the music actually got drowned out in the sound mix. I would have appreciated okay. it being higher up in the sound mix. I mean, certainly, and again, given that the score, it, what Wolfish does is he he throughout most of the movie he only reiterates the first few notes of that theme again and, until you get to like the final battle at the end. The theme kind of is fragmentary and it it kind of easily gets lost within I think within the movie there's also a lot of the more needle drop songs in in the movie than I was expecting there's there's a bit where um don't let me don't don't stop me now by Queen is used 
and it's it, it was kind of weird because clearly the, the the length of the scene isn't tailored to the length of the song. So don't don't stop me now ends up being looped. There's there's a particular there's a bit of the song that ends up being looped about three or four times just to make sure that it fits the length of the scene. And I was kind of like, <laughs> I, what I wouldn't have given for an actual bit of like rousing sort of score music yeah. using that theme over that particular sequence. Um, so maybe some of the, the you know the music editing, the sound mixing, for me was maybe a little bit ropey mm. in in the in the film itself but i mean i'm, I'm not denying it. it's, it's a perfectly solid entertaining score I, I just like the film itself i didn't find myself necessarily bowled over by it but that said i'm sure i'm going to go back and listen to it again and that theme wow it's we need yeah. more superhero themes that sound like that nowadays we do i mean we certainly really haven't had any in the dceu so far you know it's the dceu films have been you know, the, the, there's not many really standout. I don't think there's any particularly standout scores, even though it's had some pretty good composers. So this, you know, in terms of that theme, it, it's it's a bit more old school sort of DC rousing in that sense. So that's great, and it, and it shows that Wolfish is capable of that as well, which is which is really exciting. Well, Wolfish has had an astonishingly good year. I mean, he's he's done Hellboy as well. I mean, It Chapter Two is coming up. He's done Serenity. I mean, what 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 an extra! I mean, we're talking about how James Horner had great years in like nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety five. This might well be Wolfish's year in terms of demonstrating his versatility across a host of different genres. And I think clearly that might be why a lot of producers and directors want to work with him. I mean, any composer that can work across a multitude of genres while maintaining a kind of house style is clearly going to be very much in demand and, and deservedly so, frankly. I think he's a terrific composer. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about Hellboy in the next episode, I think, um, because Hellboy's out soon. We'll come back to Wolfish in the next episode. So we're going to call it. We'll call it a day there, I think, and uh, we're going to um, play you out with uh, some uh, Apollo thirteen. Given we were talking about that earlier, um, which has uh, recently been re-released via Intrada Records, uh, beautiful new re-release of James Horner's amazing music. So uh, you know, Sean obviously mentioned that earlier. Talked about it in some depth about how great it is, and uh, I think it's going to be a lovely piece to uh, to play out, play you out with. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to be we're going to be back uh, in a few weeks, uh, and uh, yeah, as I say, we're going to talk about Hellboy, and um, we've got Alan Silvestri's Avengers Endgame on the horizon as well. Obviously, that film is super anticipated, and we mentioned it in the last episode. But the score isn't too far away now, so I'm very excited to get my hands on that, and we'll see where we go with it. We'll be we'll be back soon. Enjoy James Horner's Apollo 13. Uh, enjoy all the new film music out there, and thanks as ever for listening. And we'll be back on the next episode of Between the Notes.
Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.